You're listening to the Deepening Your Practice podcast with George Haas. Deepening Your Practice is recorded at the Against the Stream Buddhist Meditation Society in Los Angeles, California. For more information, visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's www.mettagroup.org. So welcome everybody, this is Deepening Your Practice. Deepening Your Practice is intended as an intermediate or advanced class. And what that really means is I'm not going to be offering any basic meditation instruction. I expect you already to know that. <clears throat> that being said, if you find that I'm talking about something and you don't understand what I'm talking about, I'm happy to answer any questions. I'm just not going to include uh, the uh, basic stuff. We are uh, talking about Mahasi Sayadaw's <clears throat> Manual of Insight. This is a new translation by the Metavipassana Society. Uh, and uh, we've been talking about um, <clears throat> overcoming hindrances. Um, Mahasi has made a distinction between um, <clears throat> a tranquility first, insight second type of of vipassana practice and a uh, insight first or karnaka samadhi is the Pali word for that. Karnaka samadhi might be translated as momentary concentration. Um... In insight practice, <clears throat> we want to be able to to investigate um, the nature of the human experience or the human condition <clears throat> to see clearly what it is. In order to do that, you have to have uh, a basic level of concentration. The uh, chapter that we're currently working on in this manual is called Purification of Mind. And what the term purification of mind means is that the mind is free of hindrances. Uh, You're probably aware of the list of five hindrances, uh, craving, aversion, restlessness restlessness and agitation, sloth and torpor, and doubt. Um, To say that the mind is then pure is to say that those hindrances are not present. In a traditional tranquility first way of practicing meditation, first you establish a deep level of concentration where the mind is continuously free of these uh, hindrances. And once the mind is pure, you go into vipassana practice. Um, This is a, a kind of practice or an organization of practice that has been largely used in monastic life. And we are householders. And so when uh, uh, the Sayadaws in Myanmar uh, uh, talked about a, a organizing practice for householders, householders that would not eventually become monastics, they talked about it in the terms of momentary concentration. Rather than having to generate a depth of concentration where the mind was pure, first and then moving into 
uh, Vipassana or insight practice, they uh, developed uh, and taught a practice of momentary concentration. So what that means is that in the moment that you're noting your awareness, the mind is pure, free from hindrances, and that in the spaces in between, the mind may be caught up again in the hindrances. And then as you string together a series of noting uh, experiences, the, the, the <clears throat> what shall we call it, weight of the concentration then begins to fill in, in, in the spaces and eventually you reach a level of concentration that's equivalent to the tranquility first practice. So this they thought would be a better way of uh, householders practicing and if you look at the culture of uh, Buddhist meditation uh, in this country and certainly uh, in the West, it has been very uh, successful as a, a technique. So it's commonly called a noting technique or a Burmese style of, of Vipassana practice. So to note, oh my God, hello. <laughs> Um, a noting practice is to know where your attention is and then to soak in and have the experience of uh, the sensing process. So you, you know where your attention is and then you soak in and have the experience, the sensing experience, and that is um, I'm smiling because I haven't seen these two people for a while. One from New York, one from Hawaii. Yes. <coughs> Hello, <laughs> welcome. Um, so, working to to rid the mind of hindrances or in, in the blockages to concentration in a Karnaka Samadhi practice is a little bit different than in a, uh, a sort of access or jhana type practice. So, um, obstacles to concentration and the methods to overcome them. Thoughts of past and future. Returning to the past, the mind grows restless. Not thinking of the past, the mind settles on objects in the present then the mind does not become restless. Anticipating the future, the mind becomes restless. Not thinking of the future, the mind settles on objects in the present. Then the mind does not become restless. <clears throat> Things uh, that one has previously seen, heard, smelled, taste, tasted, touched, or thought about are called objects of the past. Remembering them makes the mind restless. This is called a restless mind. The past may distract one in various ways <coughs> during insight practice. One may simply remember objects that one once experienced. One may think about whether or not one's practice was going well. One may wonder whether one's contemplation was effective. One may wonder whether or not one's previous noting was distinct. One may wonder whether or not one experienced mind or body and so forth. Have you ever noticed the mind engaged in thinking while you're attempting to practice? Mindfulness is a term that means awareness of the present moment. So each time you're in the past or the future, you're, you've lost mindfulness. And so the idea is to keep 
coming back into the experience of the present moment. <clears throat> what page are you on? 78. A mind that anticipates or longs for objects that have not yet come into existence is by nature wandering, restless, and unsteady. This is an obstacle to insight concentration. Therefore, one should note every time the mind grows restless and then direct the mind to objects in the present. Then the mind will no longer wander, but it will be well focused on objects in the present. So this is a simple instruction. You've probably heard it a thousand times. If the mind wanders, bring it back. You've heard that instruction, right? That's what we're talking about here. In order to pay attention, to know that the mind has wandered, you have to be mindful. So allowing this process of the past to the future. Another way to think about it is to, to understand that you make a decision to, to focus your attention on the thought of the past or the future and you could uh, easily make the same decision or simply make the same decision to stay on the object of meditation, to settle into a concentrated mind. You may not notice that that's what you're doing because you get caught up in the content of thought and you're there for a while and you don't notice the moment that the thought arises and your attention switches from the object of meditation to the thought. So you want to keep maybe even thinking your way back to the moment that you got carried away into the thought so you can begin to pay attention, be mindful in that moment that the thought first arises to not choose to think about it. Is that making sense? Do you have a sense of that? Are you present enough in that moment when the thought arises that you can see it arising? If you if you're there in that moment as it arises, you're much more likely to have the opportunity to continue to focus on the object of meditation rather than be drawn into the content of thinking. Laziness and restlessness. <clears throat> Shrinking or lax, the mind grows lazy. Encouraging the mind, laziness is overcome. Then the mind does not become restless. When overactive, the mind becomes fidgety, reducing exertion, fidgetiness is overcome. Then the mind does not become restless. Laziness and idleness often occur due to the mind that shrinks and is lax. When practice does not go smoothly, when special insight knowledge cannot be aroused and when progress cannot be made. This laziness or unwillingness to practice is an obstacle to insight concentration. So... Laziness should be removed by noting it closely. If this does not work, the mind can be encouraged in some other way. Um, So, one of the suggestions here uh, for encouraging the mind in in another way is to reflect on the dangers of the lower realms. Um, One of the things uh, that's often the experience of Western practitioners is that when we come to these passages of uh, traditional uh, Buddhist teaching, we tend to skip over them because their descriptions are so, uh, can we use the word poetic? 
to describe them. <clears throat> um, I tend to come from a place of Buddhist atheism, so I'm not uh, wedded to uh, a fundamental belief that these descriptions are an accurate representation of something that actually exists. Um, but you may have a different view of it. Um, <clears throat> if you do not practice, if you do not gain liberation, if you're engaged in unskillful acts that produce a negative karma, then the likelihood is that you'll be reincarnated in a lower realm. To contemplate the nature of the lower realm is a way out of the laziness of not practicing. Lazy, laziness is a, trans, a, a word that um, I think has a pejorative quality in our culture. Were um, lacks, were any of those kinds of things, idleness, all of these. But let me describe to you the nature of the lower realm of hell, just so you have a sense of where you're going if you don't keep up your practice. <laughs> a victim in hell realms is about uh, a victim in the hell realms is about three furlong, furlongs tall. The wardens of hell push the victim down onto the flaming iron ground forcing him or her to lie in a supine position. Then they drive nails as big as palm trees into his right and left hands right and left feet and waist. After the back, that, the victim is forced to lay face down or on the side and is tortured again in the same way. <clears throat> as long as his or her unwholesome karma has not yet been exhausted, the victim cannot die. To see the flaming iron ground and hear the cruel and ruthless shouts of the wardens of hell provokes incredible agony. To be staked to the ground and consumed by flames, to see huge nails, to be cruelly pierced by them, causes mental and physical suffering that cannot be fathomed. In hell, there is no one who is kind or who rescues the victims of hell, even though they cry for mercy with cheeks streaked with tears. Being separated from their mothers, fathers, relatives, inmates, <clears throat> intimate friends, being completely alone, they wail despondently as they experience this great suffering without relief for even a second. During this time, there is no chance to practice insight meditation. <laughs> All right. Um... So depending on how bad your karma is, you don't die, right? So you can go through others. Um, if the victim has not perished after the first round of torture, the warden slices his or her body into various shapes with size as big as the roof of a house until blood flows like a river. Huge flames leap up from the blood, burning the sliced parts of the body. Again, the victim suffers immeasurably and has no opportunity to practice insight meditation. So. If they can escape hell, they come to the hell of the stream. The stream is full of bubbling liquid iron uh, that has reeds and lotuses floating in it, whose leaves are as sharp as razor blades. 
The riverbed is covered with sharp razor blades, and the banks of the stream are also overgrown with grasses and reeds whose leaves are sharp as razor blades. If the victim happens to go into the stream, they fall down with a thud as they cut themselves on the sharp razor blades in the ground. Then they are burned by the hot molten iron. Then after falling down, they float in the bubbling hot molten iron going upstream and down as there are sharp razor blade-like grasses and reeds on the banks of the stream and razor-like leaves on the house, the lotuses and reeds, then the molten iron, the victim's body becomes torn and battered. Here, too, they have no opportunity at all to practice insight meditation. <clears throat> it sounds like Dante's realms of hell. It does, in a way. Yeah. How are you able to escape in any fashion if you can't practice it? <laughs> <laughs> Does it sound very atheist? What? No. Versions of hell. Oh, um, well... Is it a metaphor? No, I don't think that the, that um, uh, its practice is a metaphor in, in, in Myanmar. They, they think of this as a literal description of the lower realms. But their mind states, are they? Are they well, but dark I th- mind states? No, I think that in, in Myanmar, these are descriptions of... These descriptions describe what uh, most people think literally exists. I think in the West we look at it and it sounds uh, unbelievable to us, preposterous maybe, and so then we begin to try and describe it in terms of metaphors that make sense to us like mind states or poetic descriptions or something else. We, we, we cling feverishly to the religion of science that we all have and uh, it, it it says that these things can't possibly be true, so something else must be true. In some sense, it's the same kind of fixated belief. When I listen to the uh, Sayadaw uh, give uh, Dharma talks, uh, one of my favorite stories he tells is of uh, a woman who wanted to go to the Shwedagon Pagoda in, in downtown Yangon, and her children didn't want to take her because she was so old that she was very slow moving and they were in a hurry and so they told her she couldn't go and uh, left her at home and then they all piled into a taxi and uh, the woman was so distraught that she began to practice metta and the energy of her metta was so strong that she flew from her house to the Shwedagon Pakoda in downtown Yangon and got there before her family did. Cool. Exactly. <laughs> but I don't think that that literally happened, but I love the story. But the people that he was talking to did think that it literally happened. So how do you make sense of that, right? Well, I like that they had taxis and also <laughs> teleportation or whatever. Right. So... Oh, virtuous people, only at a time when you are a human being can you practice insight meditation. Don't be lazy, don't be forgetful, practice seriously. This is how to be encouraged and motivated by reflecting on the dangers of the lower realms. So, is that useful to you? I would think in the West, for most people, this, 
the contemplation of the lower realms is not going to be motivating you in terms of a belief in, in the nature of hell and um, being stuck, being reincarnated in the, in the lower realm. Am I wrong about that? Do you believe literally in the, the lower realms and are you fearful that you'll be reincarnated in one? So I don't know that, it, that it's... One of the reasons that we begin to translate these things is because culturally they don't work for us. Uh, and so it's useful to begin to consider what actually does motivate you in your practice and what is it that you see getting out of insight practice? What is it you're actually getting? Because you do come here, you do practice, you are interested in getting something out of the practice. What is it? What is it that, that will, will motivate you? Because as you know, practice requires time, energy, and resources, and you, you have to, in, in some sense, really participate in, in the practice. It's not passive. We are a culture of distraction, and passive distraction is probably the most popular form. We want to go somewhere and have something happen to us that we don't really have to participate in beyond observing. And this is not that here. This is not that. This is actually engaging actively in the pursuit of something. And why do you do it? And then what's helpful in terms of motivating you to do it consistently enough that you get the fruits of practice? <clears throat> um, insight practice leads one to enlightenment through path, fruition, and nibbana brings liberation from both suffering up from the lower realms and the cycle of suffering. So the cycle of suffering is another way of describing reincarnation. When, when we talk about being freed from suffering, what we're also saying is that you're freed from the cycle of rebirth. That If you take birth in the human form, that you, you suffer. And the, the only way out of that is to not take reincarnation. <clears throat> um, but is that something that concerns you? Are you desirous of being free of the cycle of suffering and that's why you practice or is that also not going to be so useful in terms of practice? Or do you, as we commonly do in the West, create a, a we take the phrase cycle of suffering and then we decide that it, that it only applies to the difficulties of this life. So completely changing the definition of what was originally uh, talked about. Um, <clears throat> why did you come? I came um, because I wanted to be liberated. I wanted to be enlightened. Insight practice leads one to enlightenment through path fruition and nirvana and brings liberation from suffering in both the lower realms and the cycle of suffering. The benefit that it bestows are so great that there is no other way that they will be realized with a half-hearted practice. In, in Buddhist thought, the only uh, craving, the only striving that, that is considered wholesome is the striving for enlightenment. But then that would mean that you knew what it was that you were striving for. Because if you were striving for something that you thought was enlightenment but wasn't really enlightenment, then it would be an unwholesome striving. So when you, when you came here, did you want enlightenment? 
one of the things about the Burmese style of practice is that the, it's firmly entrenched in this kind of practice that householders can become enlightened. This is a, a basic uh, tenet of this, this kind of Burmese practice. But then, do you know what that is? What does that mean, really? Um, when I initially went down to Venice uh, in 1992 to take my introduction to uh, insight meditation class, um, the teacher went around the room and everybody had to declare what the reason was that they came to practice. And I said I wanted to be enlightened. Um, I think maybe one of the great joys of being from the Midwest is that I'm perpetually naive. <laughs> <laughs> and there was a great round of laughter that that would be an aspiration that one might have because they were teaching in a, in a Thai forest tradition where householders don't get enlightened in fact only male monastics can get enlightened women can't get enlightened <clears throat> uh, so But maybe why, why I came was that I was suffering and I, and I had tried a lot of different things to help with the suffering and it seemed to me <clears throat> uh, that meditation had a good reputation for relieving suffering and that maybe I would try that and see if it worked. I had been studying uh, um, mostly on my own, not being very, um, let's just say, Earlier in my life, I had significant trust issues uh, around authority figures, and it was very difficult for me to take on uh, a, a subordinate role to somebody. Um, also, um, my early life was so cruel that uh, I had a, a no tolerance for that. It, I had, if you weren't extraordinarily kind, I really couldn't listen to you, and so. It took a lot of time to find a teacher that was extraordinarily kind uh, and that I felt safe enough with. Now, it, admittedly, I, I would set up these very elaborate obstacle courses testing the, the, the teacher and, the, and most of them failed miserably. <laughs> and that it was unfair, and I, I see that now. <clears throat> Why did you come? Did you come to reduce your stress? Did you come because you were unhappy? Do you, did you come because you wanted to get into the great game of a life as we do it in our culture? Did you get everything you wanted in uh, the great game of our culture and find that you were still unhappy? Why did you come? The reason that this is, is a useful investigation is because in there somewhere you'll find the reasons that will motivate you to continue with the practice. The, the practice is really good at, at eliminating stress as, a, as an issue. And, but I think also that you'll find that to simply eliminate stress isn't going to be enough. It won't be enough. And then shimmering <coughs> on the horizon, you'll see happiness and the, the meditation path is often called the path to happiness. And, and you'll pursue that, and, and you'll find that, yes, it's very good at making life happy, and that you can have that, and that it's still not enough to have a, a meaningful life. <clears throat> 
and that on the horizon shimmering will be freedom and you'll pursue that and you'll find that that's actually a fairly arduous path to be free but if you can get there you can be free that it is a great freedom and it's enough to have a meaningful life so um, so the five hindrances uh, also overzealousness or agitation sometimes when mind becomes overzealous overenergized this can manifest in various ways such as making a determination to effectively note every single object however delicate or subtle it may be spending time checking whether or not one was successful in noting an object or which objects were missed or caught making uh, a resolution not to miss any object ever again uh, when one finds that one has missed an object reflecting on this uh, has made the utmost effort and that one cannot do more than this or experiencing physical tension such as clenching the jaw grinding the teeth clutching the hands uh, making fists have you noticed when the mind gets agitated restless lust and aversion <clears throat> Gratified, the mind grows lustful. Be, being aware of it, lust is overcome. Then the mind does not become restless. Frustrated, the mind becomes averse. Being aware of it, aversion is overcome. Then the mind does not become restless. Have you ever noticed the mind turning to erotic thoughts as you're sitting on the cushion? Apparently, it's never happened to anyone here. <laughs> <laughs> it used to happen more when I was younger. <laughs> So, <laughs> don't long for anything. Don't be frustrated by anything. Note liking and longing every time they occur. Observe frustration or disappointment whenever it arises. If you can come into awareness of the present moment, if the mind is pure of hindrances, you settle into one-pointedness. When the obstacles to concentration have been overcome with the <coughs> aforementioned six remedies, One's mind no longer returns to the past or anticipates the future. It is no longer shrinking or overactive. Rather, it is, only, uh, it is only noting the mental and physical phenomena that arise in the moment. Um, we aren't actually talking much about what it is that you're investigating in insight practice. Here we're really talking about the, the, the necessity, the bare necessities of what's necessary for you to be able to push inward into the uh, insight practice. Um, momentary concentration insight practice is all about noting. So noting is to know where your attention is and to soak in and and be aware of what the sensing experience is. So we're dividing the mental from the body, the mind from the body in that sense. The mind knows what the pattern of sensing experience is, and then the body senses it. And so we want to make a distinction between those two. Um, so <clears throat> tonight we're going to do an investigation of that using Shinzen's see, hear, feel technique. So the, the Mahasi's uh, commentary is setting the stage for an investigation of the 16 stages of insight. Uh, 
the 16 stages of insight are descriptions of what the, the insight pursuit is that will take you to the path of enlightenment. This is uh, all of the, the canonical descriptions of practice are oriented toward taking you to enlightenment. In the West, we have lots and lots of practices that are meant to do lots and lots of different things, to, to be relational, to be uh, happier, all of those different kinds of orientations of practice to reduce stress. But in the traditional Theravada, Burmese style of practice, the 16 stages is the map. The first stage is to separate mind from body or mental from body, the knowing what it is from the actual sensing experience of it. The second stage is called conditionality. And that is to understand that the present moment experience sets the stage for the, the, the experience that follows. That each moment, uh, without the present moment being the way that it is, the, the moment after couldn't unfold the way it unfolds. So you begin to pay attention to this, this flow of experience that is defined by this. This moment sets the stage Sets, creates the possibility for the next moment. In, in practice, you're not directing the mind. You're simply being present and witnessing whatever is happening. But in that witnessing, when we focus on the second stage, pay attention to when the mind moves to the next sensing experience. So you're in one sensing experience, you know that that's where it is, you soak into it, and then the mind moves to the next one. What is that process of the mind choosing the next thing to focus on? Can you pay attention and notice in that process that there's many possibilities where the, the mind could go and yet it goes to a specific place? Watching that process of selection happen. <clears throat> and then the third uh, stage is called uh, the three characteristics, uh, the three marks of existence. Have you heard of this? Uh, anatta, anicca, and dukkha. Anatta is not self, anicca is impermanence, and dukkha is uh, often translated as unsatisfactoriness. There's three levels of it. The first level is uh, old age, sickness, and death. We're born in a human body, it will grow old, it will get sick, and it will die, and there's nothing you can do about it. The second level is uh, the suffering that often comes from getting what you want and losing it, from not getting what you want or having to put up with things that you don't want. Ever had those experiences? Mm -hmm. And then the last one is a subtle, ongoing, constant irritation that nothing is exactly the way you would have it if you were actually in charge of anything. It's a kind of double-edged sword. It's not the way you want it and that makes you realize that you're not in charge of anything. In doing the same technique, first we'll look at mind and body, the second we'll look at conditionality. Where does the mind go? Why does it go where it goes? What is that inclination of mind? Can you see the conditions? <clears throat> An example of that would be somebody coughs <clears throat> and that brings your attention to hearing. And because your mind is in hearing, you're able to hear the subtle sound of the train as it goes by and you follow the sense of this 
sound of the train and that creates an image of the train and then the mind goes and examines the image that that sound causes to arise in the in in, in the body but it isn't the image of the present moment it's an image of something that you remember that comes with an emotional feeling and then the the attention moves into the body to touch into the experience of emotion that the image generated. You following me on that? <clears throat> so you can, in some sense, follow this thread of experience. One sensing experience arises, which then sets the possibility for the next moment to happen. And then in the third stage, <coughs> Uh, and, and tonight we're going to, to investigate only the, the self-no-self piece. Who's causing this to happen? Are you simply allowing your attention to be drawn to whatever it's drawn to? Or are you intending your attention to move from place to place? Who's hearing? Who's feeling? Who's seeing? Or is there nobody there doing that? Then you have this experience of no-self. The more you push into simply the flow of energy, but the less ownership of it, the, 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 the fainter the experience of self is. And you can get into a state of just pure flowing, sensing energy where nothing really gets fixated and there's really very little, if any, sense of self. But then what happens if uh, there's a strong sense of self? Again, someone coughs and it, <coughs> it's totally irritating that they've disrupted your perfect moment of concentration and so big angry self arises calling out to heaven for a lightning bolt to eradicate the coughing offender and then that comes and goes and then you notice that again you're back to this flowing sense of experience and that sense of big angry self is completely gone where did it go if it wasn't you, the owner, the doer, the author, the creator. And then, <clears throat> in, a, in a few moments later, another sense of self arises, a sense of compassionate self arises, very different from big angry self. What was that, and how long does it last before it too arises and passes away? And then you come into this place of seeing the insubstantiality of self. That would be the third stage or the third insight that's useful in your path toward liberation. So let's do some practice. just going to do some insight practice. I'm not going to do any uh, concentration practice uh, as we start the period of meditation. I want you to get a sense that you can go directly into the Karnaka Samadhi 
practice and not do any additional insight practice. I'm <coughs> uh, sorry, any in additional concentration practice. But you may find it that you don't practice enough that the concentration comes easily and then it might make more sense for you to add some additional concentration development to your uh, sitting practice. When we do uh, Karnaka Samadhi or momentary insight, momentary concentration insight practice, you want to hold the body still without moving it. There's a couple of reasons that we do this. One is that the uh, body-mind will automatically adjust itself every time it becomes uncomfortable and in order to prevent that from happening you have to be in the present moment when the impulse to move arises in the mind. Um, we don't have a initiation function in uh, consciousness, we have a veto function. So the unconscious process of the body-mind figures out that it's uncomfortable, that it needs to move, and it, at the last uh, a microsecond it sends a, a, a missive saying, I'm about to move, can we go ahead? And if you're not present and veto it, the body will just adjust itself. So this not moving reinforces present moment awareness, reinforces mindfulness. The second reason is that we're often investigating subtle sensation in the body and the constant movement of the body obscures the uh, experience of it. As we're paying attention to subtle experience of the body, if the body becomes painful and we move, we may not be able to find the subtle experience again and lose the capacity to investigate. Um, so we're attempting to hold the body as still <coughs> as we can and then the rule of thumb for moving it is if the body becomes painful and the level of pain in the body is enough to distract you from your technique then adjusting the body to reduce the pain so you can return to the technique is a good idea but pay attention to the kind of movement that you make. It's often enough simply to straighten up a little bit or move the foot a couple of inches one direction or another rather than shaking the body out and moving it around. Each time you do that, you settle in and, and have to begin again, whereas sometimes with small adjustments you can maintain the mindfulness. Always a good idea to do a quick inventory of the body as part of the settling in process. So starting at the top of the head, relax the scalp, the brow, the eyes, the face. Let the jaw go slack, relaxing the tongue. Straighten the spine, balancing the head. Relax the shoulders. Just let the arms hang down, arranging the hands comfortably. If you're sitting in a chair, plant your feet so you have a good solid base. And if you're sitting on a bench or a cushion, arrange the legs so they'll be comfortable for the period of sitting. Just let the breath go in and out as it will, no effort to control it. If you know how to do the flexible noting see here feel strategy, go ahead and begin and I'll give some instructions. So typically Vipassana meditation is done eyes closed, but one of the reasons that you might do that differently is if you find that you're falling asleep, 
and want to add energy to the meditation and then opening the eyes often accomplishes this. Uh, we're going to divide uh, visual experience from auditory experience from felt experience in the body as the three domains. <clears throat> this is a little different than you might have in a traditional Burmese style of noting. In a Burmese style of noting, you simply let your attention be drawn to whatever is interesting and then you generate a, a label for that, a name for that. Um, that it tends to engage uh, a part of the mind uh, that creates a lot of experience of self. And so using the see, hear, feel uh, method where the, these categories are predefined uh, is helpful in uh, being able to experience uh, insight into self and no self. So um, that's why we're doing it this way. <clears throat> If your eyes are open and your attention is drawn to exterior sight space, if your eyes are closed and your attention is drawn to the uh, experience of visual thinking, for most people that happens on a screen centered at the eyes in front of or slightly behind the eyes. A blank screen, um, most people experience it as a darkness or a modulating grayscale. Some people describe it as a lightness. So a blank screen centered in the eyes and then imagery associated with thinking arises there. You may also notice uh, there's a visual aspect of the body's current position. It's called proprioceptus in English. How you know how the body's positioned in visual thinking. Some people report a dark center with a glowy edge. Most people report that the mind rapidly scans through the body and then creates an image of how it's positioned. There's also the aspect of visual thinking, which is the body's location in its current environment. So most people report a view looking straight out from the, the face. <clears throat> Although some people do report being outside of the body looking at it. There is the <coughs> image reaction to local sensation in the body. So you feel a pressure in the body and often there's a visual experience accompanying it. And then there's the visual aspect of uh, uh, reaction to exterior sound. So maybe you hear the sound of my voice and see an image of me in the front of the room. Any of those experiences, we're going to note them, that is to say, know that our attention is in a visual experience. We're going to soak into the sensing of that experience. And then we're going to generate in auditory thinking space the label C, uh, the purpose of labeling is to reinforce concentration. If your attention is drawn to an aspect of auditory experience, <clears throat> either exterior sound or internal auditory thinking, the clear talk of the mind, the words whose meaning you can understand, uh, for most people uh, that's inside the head between the ears, a soft area, not a pinpoint. Although some people do report hearing, uh, auditory thinking, and exterior sound at the opening of the ears. If your attention is drawn to an aspect of visual, uh, of auditory experience, you're going to note that. Know that that's where your attention is. Soak into the sensing experience. And you're going to generate the single word label here in auditory thinking space. No need to label the labeling. <coughs> 
if your attention is drawn to the body, the felt sense of the body could be uh, <coughs> the effects of gravity, of temperature, of respiration, of circulation, of uh, the efforting to hold the posture, or it could be emotional content in the body. Any of those, you're going to note it, know that that's where your attention is, so can have the sensing experience, and you're going to generate the label feel in auditory thinking space. If more than one sensing experience is active at the same time, just choose one to focus on. And I'll do a little uh, out loud. <clears throat> feel. Feel. See. Feel. Here, here, feel, you get the idea. In this uh, segment of the meditation this evening, the insight that we're exploring is the knowing what it is as different uh, from the sensing experience. So pay attention to that. Feeling into the sensing experience and then uh, watching the mind recognize that pattern of sensing and know what it is. Associate a uh, conditioning to it. Concentrate. Were you able to tease apart knowing what it is from the sensing experience? Huh? Were you able to follow the conditionality? one sensing experience leading into another. Could you say more about that one? Um, you're in, let's say you're in sea space and the mind is just hanging out there. You're not doing anything to change it. And then all of a sudden it moves into feel space. What is that process of, the, of that shifting into the next experience? Can you pay attention? Do you, do you have a sense of where the mind is going to go before it ends up there? Uh-huh. Can you say, um, the difficulty of 
quickly of that part of the process was simply that in order to process any shift in sensation, you have to use like your thought, and thus I would then hear. <coughs> so. So you'd you'd have a narrative as to where the the mind was going. Yeah, and then so I, then I was like here. So I almost try, just try to ignore that part. Right. Um, I would say that that's the experience of this stage of sitting, but it's not required. That that you have a thought watching it, maybe. Uh, in some, in that moment, a sense of self was created to watch the process of the mind. That you could get into a place of flow where you're simply knowing where the mind is going to go. Is is the noting a narrative, or is it just a process that doesn't have a narrative involved? If you keep it clip to one word it doesn't tend to bloom into a narrative but it can easily bloom into a narrative of so just as a question the, the, the noting to me felt like self but the sensing felt like no self uh-huh. like I had no control over what was, was just happening but then the creation of the word created a sense of self doing it and then maybe investigate if you don't create the label if you're just noting so just the knowing and the soaking in whether that same thing happens the label is really there to boost your concentration so it's late in the evening in the middle of the week so maybe we're tired and uh, our concentration doesn't form well enough and so using the labeling is a kind of turbo boost for concentration but if you're concentrated well enough you don't need to label yeah I, you know what it was really funny I felt like I was concentrating so strong that my head went into this thing like it was Mara and all of a sudden all this stuff was hitting me and so I did a little quick meta to you know because it really was getting too intense <laughs> it was kind of cool just having that all happen good Mara we're starting a punk band, just so you know, called The Whores of Mara. <laughs> the Whores of Mara? Whoa. That's itty gritty. We're going to have three backup singers, the daughter of Mara, the daughters of Mara. I, for one, always picture Mara in drag. I don't know about you. <laughs> <laughs> Not until now. <laughs> and what about the investigation around self and no self? How did that go? Do you have a... I was noticing that I had a strong identification with the knowingness in that set. It's, it was as if I were watching from awareness of self and then I would lose track of that altogether and it would just be in the selfing experience and then that would pass and I would be back to awareness watching.
Um, what do you think about the idea of insight practice being organized around these particular explorations? Does that make sense to you in terms of a way of organizing practice? The second. Is there is there a goal, or is it just simply to notice? Well, the process of de-identifying and clarifying. What what happens often is that the sense of self arises, Mm -hmm. and we're aware of it, and we're identified with it, and then it begins to pass away, and we step back into awareness, and that acts as a bridge. We then identify or imbue awareness itself with a sense of identity, and then when the next sense of self arises, we jump back into the experience of self, and that process creates this perception that the self is ongoing. If you pay attention and separate awareness from the consciousness of self, then you see that the sense of self arises and passes and awareness is just the neutral observer watching it. So it's a clarification that awareness is not actually the activity of self, but the thing that knows that the activity of self is present. In terms of applying it, or maybe this is getting too specific, but if, like, if you're more aware of that separateness, then are, is, that, is there some idea that then you're able to is it, think about that question for a second there's very little suffering in awareness there's a lot of suffering in the experience of self so if you can, really the, the idea is this figure ground reversal where you step out of these identifications with self as the central agent of, of your activity into awareness, mm-hmm. then you, you inhabit this place of very little suffering as opposed to being confined to these repeated arisings of self that are often pressure cookers of suffering. You notice a, a sense of self arise, big angry self, you realize that it's it's immaterial and that it doesn't need defense and you just allow it to come and go and awareness is watching that which is totally neutral no suffering you manifest a sense of self-consciousness and you step back into awareness and let it fall away and then re-manifest another sense of self that has more agency and in in some sense that makes you much better at being engaged in the world Seem like there's some consistency. If you actually could do that, you'd have more of a consistent self. Reliable. Well, be <laughs> consistently aware, right. and then the self experiences would come and go. You'd be more like more of a resilient, spacious kind of person. Right. 
Do you ever identify strongly with a sense of self and suffer horribly? I did this week. <laughs> I, I got jealous. I identified huh? with a person who had lost something. I mean, oh, it's so painful. And I watched myself forming around that. And then I was aware of it. And I intentionally yeah. stopped. Good. Oh, but for a moment. So the idea, of course, is not to eradicate the selfing experience. You need it, and you need it to be brilliant, and you need it to be efficient and good at it. <clears throat> but you don't want to get trapped in it. You want to be able to come and go from the experience of self without clinging, without fixating unnecessarily longer than you need to. Yeah, I was thinking, I guess where I was getting stuck, I was thinking that was where that, how it comes into action and decision making and moving forward or not, you know, so a lot of times decisions and the next steps we take are responses to the self, right? I'm so irritated with something and you do something, but then, or like you're disappointed with yourself and then you get upset, like, right, so then you you act on it, but if you um, have that awareness, then what is it that is making decisions? Is there a different well, place to make decisions from? Awareness. That can make decisions? Well, awareness doesn't actually probably make decisions. It right. knows. And the sense of self doesn't make decisions either. It's the unconscious process of the body-mind that, that makes decisions. The unconscious <clears throat> part of the body-mind makes decisions. Yeah, the consciousness does not know, does not do any of that. It simply knows that that's what's happening. Right. So the body-mind makes it, takes in the data, processes it, understands it, formulates a decision, and then at the last possible second it sends a bulletin to the conscious mind, which is, we're about to do this, is this a good idea? And if you're mindful, you can hit the veto button when it flashes if it's a bad idea. And then the body-mind will reformulate another way of being, and it'll send up the next bulletin. We're about to do this. Is this a good idea? If nobody's in the booth to hit the veto button, you just do it. And that could be coming out of a, a conditioned response. Well, it could be totally coming out of the, the sense of angry self, the, the misunderstanding that angry self is substantial and needs vigorous defense. And if nobody's mindful... The plan of vigorous defense is to beat the crap out of somebody. You just go beat the crap out of them. Right? That's what happens. Or you yell at them, or you say something unkind or hurtful. So there's no inherent wisdom in body-mind? Uh, a database of this pattern of experience happens, we've done these different responses in the past, we've gotten these different outcomes in the past, we kind of would like to have that kind of outcome, so we'll take that action. I feel like, when, especially when, I was, when I'm doing a lot of practice, sometimes on retreat, I'll just, I'll do something, I'm doing it before I even knew that, it, that I had had that idea. Mm-hmm. Like I remember one time I was teaching yoga on retreat, and I've been sitting a lot, and I picked up a block and I brought it to this woman who needed it. And I knew that she needed it. But I was literally carrying it over there for her before I even had the thought. It was such a cool... It was like it made me think of what they talk about. Wisdom function. Like the the uh, 
a deep kind of not self or spirit knowing and you just act from that open place you also understand that the conscious mind is a half a second behind what's really happening so that you, you most things you don't even know about until they've already happened consciously so if you can step out of that altogether and just be in that spontaneity of the flowing experience of the body mind that actually it, uh, it's it's uh, often wiser yeah but then but if you look at it in terms of just sort of brute processing the body mind is processing 11 million bits per second the conscious mind is processing 16 which one do you think is likely (laughs) to come up with a better answer (laughs) (laughs) so if you can step totally out of self and just act um, I'm a a photographer and uh, I would uh, sh- photograph with a 4x5. It takes about 30 minutes to set the camera up to take a picture. And if I could get totally into the zone with no self, I wouldn't even really be aware of what pictures I'd taken. And uh, that actually was the thing that gave me the most pleasure because I would get home to and develop the film in the darkroom and then I would have to investigate the negative to see what it was actually I was taking a picture of. And that was really sort of an exciting way to work. Because when I got totally in consciousness, the pictures didn't have that life that they had when I just worked from that place of of not knowing. If that makes sense as a metaphor. Um, we have run out of time. Thank you for coming. Um, I will be away on retreat for the next two weeks, so we'll have uh, some of the ATS teachers coming in, so I'm not sure what the curriculum will be. Uh, but then the, the uh, second week of January, I'll be back, and we'll continue with the Mahasi. Um, This is deepening your practice, so I'm always advocating ways for you to deepen your practice, and retreat practice is useful for that. Um, I have a retreat that's starting uh, on Monday up at La Casa de Maria in Santa Barbara. Um, There are still places available in it if you want to come to it. It's an 11-night retreat, so the first five five days of the retreat will be metta, and the, the second six days of the retreat will be Vipassana. So um, one of the things about a metta vipassana retreat is you go very deeply into the metta practice which brings you into a very kind place with yourself and then you can move from that kind place of self into the inside investigations and it tends to be much smoother rather than uh, often the vipassana experience can be uh, challenging. I've been doing this now for a year and it really is a great way to practice. Um, it's also a meaningful life retreat, which means that it's, a, that it's a relational mindfulness retreat. So in addition to the metta and, and the vipassana, it's focused on examining um, how your conditioning has affected the way that you view yourself and the way that you view other people. Um, through the lens of John Bowlby's attachment theory. So, 
I find that that's very useful in terms of understanding how your conditioning has affected the way that you engage uh, in relationships. <clears throat> are there still spaces open? George? I think there are. Um, I'm not exactly sure, but um, last Friday they were. <clears throat> um, Joanna Harper and Mary Stan Cabbage are doing a retreat uh, in uh, January for women only in Joshua Tree, a week-long retreat, and uh, Cheryl Sleen and uh, Dave Smith are doing a New Year's intention-setting retreat up at uh, in Malibu. So those are the next retreats that are available. <clears throat> I'm also an ardent supporter of meditation centers because I know that the Vipassana practice often becomes challenging and it's useful to have people who will support you in your practice. Where better to meet somebody who's uh, practicing meditation than at a meditation center? If you don't have a meditation center to come to, where the hell are you going to meet somebody who's practicing meditation, right? I work with people all over the country, uh, and one of the reasons that they often work with me is because they don't have access to any place to go, they don't have access to the Sangha, and it, and it makes the practice much harder. I know that you may think that we've been here forever and will continue to be here forever, but I can assure you that the finances of a meditation center are always precarious, and we really do rely on you to contribute to uh, the lights and the, the doors being open every time you come. Uh, we've kind of crunched the numbers, and $15 <coughs> is our uh, what we think is a good amount, but you are practicing uh, generosity for yourself as a way of opening the heart. And if you're well-resourced, uh, $15 may not mean much to you, in which case you need to practice at a level that does have meaning. If $15 means enough to you, then practice at that level. If it's too much, practice at the level that you're comfortable with. But also understand that uh, we as a community are delighted to provide the space for you to come to practice if you're not resourced. If you would also be so kind as to put the chairs back and the cushions away, that's also appreciated. We'll see you soon.